Hello and welcome to Reef Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we're talking about Cruella today. Yes. I quite fancied the look of this. Yes, from the I posters, did. the trailers. Emma Stone, I thought, really looked the part yes. of a modern, punky Cruella de Vil. Yes. In a live-action Disney remake. It's what it's like, Maleficent. They're taking their villain and they're making her relatable and giving a story. And Well, spoilers will be coming up. The idea, basically, is in the 1960s and early 70s, you see her as a very, very young girl, um, like eight years old, and she undergoes a kind of tragedy, but she's destined to be a fashion designer. And then a few years later, having encountered this tragedy, uh, you see her as Emma Stone's age, being punky, part of a grifter gang, and she encounters the world of fashion. She finally gets into the world of fashion where Emma Thompson is the... um, The Queen Bee. She's the leading designer of her day. She is like... Devil West Prada. That's where I'm going. Yeah. Anna Wintour, you know, but also Dior or somebody, right? So she is the driving force and the leading fashion designer. Yeah. uh, Who you see really is just stealing everybody else's ideas and so on. But has a kind of a genius for organisation and, you know, getting things done. So, spoilers will be coming up. Um, I don't think you like this. No, it's a film that has everything that I do like, and I certainly wanted to like it, right? I mean, visually, it's stunning. The clothes, you know, are a marvel of their own. You know, it has scenes at Liberties <laughs> you know, in the 70s with all the wonderful prints and everything. Uh, the jewellery design is magnificent. I kept just staring at what uh, Emma Stone had on her ears and on her wrists. The hairdos are like discussion points. So it's a film that in a way is very interesting, right? Because, I mean, often I dwell so much on the look of a film, the visuals of a film, and so on. And this is a film that has that, but I think it's really lacking pace, rhythm, wit, really. I think the tone is slightly off, right? Mm. I think Emma Stone, whom I love, but I think she was, she was off, you know? Uh, I hated her accent. It sounded like somebody's been telling her she's got a really good British accent, and you know, I liked her accent. Oh, did you? Yeah, I did. Uh, you know, I, I actually seen you was just telling me she, she hadn't seen the film, but she thinks Emma Stone's accent sounds terrible. I mean, I really didn't. Like, it's an accent uh. that um, is it's very practiced, but it's also an accent of a person who is putting on a performance. Uh, so I, you're saying it's deliberately false? <laughs> no, 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 exactly. But but the character is you know not at the start. At the start, the character is who she is. She's a Stella. Yeah, um, she's a different actress. What? Well, I mean, also when you first meet Emma Stone as Cruella, she's a Stella, mm. right? And later she develops this Cruella persona and then lets it take over her. And so when she becomes Cruella, it's this persona that she's putting on. It makes a lot of sense there. But I still found it believable when she was not being a Stella. She's still someone who's portraying. Something about I, myself. I, I, I liked it. I didn't, uh, and I didn't like her performance. You know, particularly all the scenes where she was working as a cleaning lady at Liberties. I mean, I think they were really forced. Uh, it was kind of rather uh, stodgy and witless, really. Uh, and I think some of that was her performance. 
Uh, she didn't have the ease and fluidity and wit. I thought uh, Emma Thompson was a marvel, mm. really, you know, because she did all of those things with the lines that Emma Stone just couldn't do because she was so stuck on giving that accent, right, that actually she couldn't move in and through the language and be playful and, you know, get a joke out of an intonation, right, the way that Emma Thompson could. And I thought what was brilliant about Emma Thompson's performance is that she did all of that. You know, she, she got a laugh out of the movement of her body at one point, mm-hmm. just the way that she went with the dogs, right? And she, you know, she managed the body and the costumes and all of it really, really fluidly. But then she would do these little things where by looking at the camera in a particular way, she would get a reaction. Yeah? And it was just a, a very subtle thing. It was yeah. like, you know, the way she turned her head, yeah, so that it had this particular graphic effect, you know, through the camera. Emma Thompson was doing none of that. Emma Stone. Emma Stone, sorry, yeah. I, um, I disagree. I think it's a little unfair on Emma Stone. I think her role is less comic. Emma Thompson gets this outrageously a snobby woman in charge. I mean, she, she like in a film that's about the backstory of this kind of classic Disney villain, she's the villain, Emma Thompson in this, right? She gets to be that. And I think she she really leans into it, and she does, and she she gives this wonderful performance. As you said, there's a really lovely line where one of her helpers or assistants or whatever um, has uh, you know given her some bad news. I think, and she says, "You've been a great." And then there's a pause, and she says, "Help." And it's the fact she had to think about like calling him, <laughs> saying that he he'd helped her. Really, really lovely. Emma Stone has less of that to do, but she's punk rock, right? Like, the, in the kind of world of this film, Emma Stone has invented punk rock and brought it to London, and she's got this crazy hair, and she's scribbling shit on walls, and she's getting drunk and passing out. So she she's this reckless abandon kind of thing. That's what she sells and communicates, and I think that really worked for me. Well, I mean, the thing is, so I agree, but I disagree, in the sense that Emma Stone has the lead character... And she, in fact, has the flashier role. Because whilst it's true that Emma Thompson is the villain, Emma Stone is given the opportunity of playing a dual character. Mm. Yeah, her transformation into a Cruella de Vil is really her transformation into the Emma Thompson character. So, yeah. you know, so she gets to do both that, you know, and punk rock queen and street girl and thief. And, yeah, mm. she's given all of these opportunities that Emma, Emma Stone is given a one-dimensional character, really. And she gets all of that from it. Right, I think uh, Emma, Emma Thompson. Thompson. <laughs> Emma Stone, you know, is allowed to do all of those different things, including the character that Emma Thompson plays. Mm. So I think it's a failure, you know, on her part as an actress uh, that she doesn't extract, you know, the juice, you know, from all of those different elements as one expects. I, I mean, I think some of it is really quite forced. I dislike the accent. She's not very good with the use of her body. She's often just like hunched up when she's being a maid, for example. But there was something else about... I do get what you mean. I do get what you mean. I think it's a little unfair, but I do get what you mean. She could could be doing more. Yeah. I mean, she's a very appealing actress. She's a very appealing persona. I like her, Mm. you know. But actually, I just don't think... um, I, I just don't think she succeeds very well with the part. And I do actually think that Emma Thompson is a measure of her failure. Yeah. I uh, I was annoyed that they didn't kill the dogs, um, <laughs> because you know I, this kind of started with Deadpool. I think right, Deadpool was like, let's do these films that are for kids, but do it eighteen rated or in America uh, R rated, 
which is a big deal in America in R rating. People really try to avoid the R rating. And they were like, no, let's do it deliberately. Loads of swearing, loads of sex and all that. And it did really, really well. And then Joker did a kind of R-rated Joker movie and, and they tried to make it very serious and all this. And you can kind of see a line from those into Cruella, I think, because it's trying to have that kind of more adult punky thing, but it's still Disney, ultimately. So Emma Thompson's character has got these three Dalmatians and the one thing that you know about Cruella de Vil is she wants to skin some Dalmatians to make a coat. And then eventually this idea arises. They kidnap the dogs. And after they kidnap them, she thinks, oh, maybe they'll make a nice coat. And then this coat shows up, right? And I thought, oh, right, they've done it off screen. Well, fair enough. They can't show you actually slitting the throat of a dog. But they've killed the dog still. And then it turns out, no, they haven't killed the dogs. And then she's just made the coat out of Teflon or something. And I thought, you know... That's a real cop-out. It is, right? I still, you know, like, I get that it's Disney. Ultimately, they, 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 they don't want to... Well, the the earlier Cruella de Vil with Glenn Close, you know, was Disney. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Those are things like as they get kind of more realistic is not the right word, but there's something grittier and something that feels more uh, in your face about the aesthetic and the design here. Well, actually, I mean, this is a film that also what I didn't like is that it's terribly sentimental. So on the one hand, it wants to be camp and superficial and surfacey, right? And then, on the other hand, it turns to mush at the most inappropriate places. Yeah, right? the family thing. The family thing. You know, and you can't have both, you know. Yeah. As in, when I say the family thing, we're talking about the thing where she refers to her criminal friends as her family. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And this is, the thing about the dogs is an example of that. I mean, you know, for Christ's sake, she's meant to be turning into Cruella Devil. Right, yeah, like, exactly. You know, you can't have, uh, you know, the devil kill a dog. I mean no problem killing a person but killing a dog right like it's I mean it's absurd right and it's a real cop out and it's also I think a, a real lack of engagement with the material right because I think even and particularly children's stories you know they go into very dark places you know yeah. I mean think of Bambi or something right and also it's it's done in a very superficial aestheticized way so if you can't turn a dog into a coat in this very heightened mm. you know comic uh thing then like it's absurd the cgi dogs got on my tits a bit what definitely appeared to me cgi dogs right well this certainly didn't look like dalmatians uh well that well well the thing about the dalmatians in particular is they were really vicious and from what I understand, Dalmatians are like really friendly. Whenever I've met a Dalmatian, it's immediately just headbutted me in my nuts mm. because it was so excited to see me. Yes. You know, so they're friendly little. I could buy them as being vicious because they're the villains' dogs. You know, she could have yes, specifically they're, they're vicious dogs, but they don't really. But they don't really sort of. They don't say that at least. You know, I would like them to have said, "Well, these are my special Dalmatians that are evil and will kill you." Yes. Um, but the, it wasn't just the Dalmatians. It was it was the regular dogs as well. The dogs that Corella and her friends own. Yes. And they were occasionally CGI. In fact, early on, I think they were a lot CGI. And they didn't, it's not that they looked bad, but you could tell. And there are times when I thought, you know, this is fair enough. Like when you get the, the Dalmatians running at the camera or doing something vicious, you think there's you know, a certain amount of justification in faking it. But a lot of it was just what happened to training an animal. Right, like I, I was, it made me think of Cats and Dogs, which mm. was from about two thousand or so, which was the Jeff Goldblum mm. film, and that was all about cats and dogs living together and having wars, and you know it was all real animals that had been shot, and then they morphed their mouths so mm. they could speak. And I thought, you know, there was a real charm in doing that. In fact, they had that charm here, where you had the young kids, the, the young English actors, who you said 
God, they're just like straight out of stage school. Because I said, those are the accents that really don't work. You know, because they're supposed to be these like little Cockney street urchins and they're speaking like they've come from RADA. Yeah. You know, like that is a certain charm that young British actors have. You go, oh, they're complete shit. Mm. I kind of don't mind that in films, right? I thought filming real animals and seeing the problems that you have in filming real animals, getting them to look in the right direction stuff, that has a charm too. And they just didn't, get, they gave up on that. I thought it goes beyond that because, you know, one of the, one of the, reasons why actors say never works with animals or dogs is because they steal the show and they, <laughs> steal, and they steal the show by being natural that you know you sometimes get asta in the thin man films and you know they just do a posture with their body or an expression right that just kind of melts you or something and actually what was interesting about in with all the dogs that there are in this film none of them there was never a moment where you went oh yeah yeah you know and i'm a real dog lover right like doesn't take very much for me to go like, oh, mm. the dog. And there, was, there wasn't there was a single moment of that. And I do think that is because of the CGI. You know, they didn't capture those those moments of expression, you know. I think that's part of it. But also when it wasn't CGI, you didn't... Like, when you have that little dog dressed up as the giant rat and they're infiltrating, uh, infiltrating the villain's place... You know, I mean, actually, there was a point of that where you laughed, where the dog jumps at the guard. You know, they had it had their moments, but there was nothing that was really engaging about those dogs that there should have been. Yes, it lacked charm. I mean, this is a very clunky film, and actually, I think that's something that I want to explore with you because, as I said earlier, it has all the elements that I normally, you know, mm. that would normally thrill me. Right, the clothes, the setting, the milieu, actually, the stylishness or. It's like sophisticated comedy. It demands to be played in a very heightened, stylized way. I normally like all of that. This had all of those elements, but they didn't really come together. You know, and I'm not clear exactly on why they didn't come together. You know, mm. there are certain things that the film has to juggle. Like it, it, it has the thing about her mum. And there is this kind of lingering thing going on about you never know who her dad is. And so this kind of question about that, I think, slightly lingers. Um, her destiny is fashion. You get right from the start when she's drawing and stuff. And so this thing about her wanting to be in the fashion world, that's there. This thing about the necklace, you have to kind of keep track of that. And then the thing about turning into Cruella. And like when she becomes Cruella and starts doing these stunts... Yeah, you know, at one point I'm going. Okay, is she has she got a label now, or is she, like is she selling clothes? <laughs> is she just is doing she, stunts? Is she schizophrenic? Is she Doctor Jekyll and Miss Hyde? I, I never, mean, that never, that never questioned. <laughs> I never questioned that. But I did think like, is she in business now? Like, what's she doing? But no, she's still working for her villain and doing all this undercover stuff. So there's a lot of various plot points to keep track of, and ultimately I think they essentially sort of cohere or at least they make sense they, they finish well they don't I mean a lot well, of them seem extraneous so for example that David Bowie-ish guy who owns the boutique hmm. what's the point of that character yeah what's the point of all of those scenes really I mean so yes she gets a dress there but you know this is a recurring character throughout the narrative I mean why yeah well the point the reason to bring him in plot wise is to have him making dresses like that's when you actually see her starting to build a kind of empire of her own he's running the business isn't he there was a shot or two of that yeah okay hey look i'm i'm, I'm just saying i saw uh, the shots you know no no like it has a plot function but, but it's is, not a strong plot function. this is a really long movie in yeah. which a lot of the segments of it seem really extraneous yeah no that i i agree um, like so when i say they cohere i mean i don't i think i basically just went back on that as soon as I said it. Like, here is not the right word, but they do kind of every little plot point reaches its conclusion 
and you kind it of has understand, a logic. You understand but it's still extraneous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like it, it could have been cleaner. It could have been um, narrower, and it does lead to a lack of focus. And the other thing is that it really felt like a natural end to the film when Cruella goes to that fountain, which you've seen her go through through a whole film. She wanted to go to this fountain when she was a little girl, and mm. then she goes there and she lost her mum stuff. She goes back to it and she talks to the fountain and talks to her previous self and says, I still love you, but I'm not you anymore. And it's this long, it's this, it's a long take, mm. single shot, and she gets to give this monologue and that feels like an ending, yes. right? And, you know, it's not an ending that where everything would have been tied up. Like, had they made that the ending, they would have needed to tie other things up one or two bits. But it felt like an ending. It felt like a real crescendo. And I thought it was great. And then more stuff just keeps happening. And I said to you, like, this should be in the sequel. Yes, because the film is clearly set up as the first in a cycle of films with Emma Stone taking over from Glenn Close in the role. That's what, you know, you, mm. you know that that's what it's about. So, you know, why cram in so much stuff in the first one, really? You know, you already know the character. You already know the basic mm. feel and milieu and, t- and tone and style of you know, what the film should be like. So it feels like a lot of it is just pointless. And some of it Mm. really got on my tits, actually. You know, that huge, long Steadicam shot at this very heightened pace where you actually can't see anything through liberties that then ends up with her cleaning toilets. I thought, what the fuck? You know, why is is so much space being, you know... I thought that was just like... um, Oh, I thought that was funny. I didn't. Well, I thought it was you know, stupid. That's the whole point. It's like she, she's finally got her dream position and then you find out she's cleaning floors. Fair enough. You know, that. I mean, that would be like an interesting, funny thing. But the way that it's done with a jerky steady cam, you know, jaggling all over the yeah, shot. Yeah, I don't know what you mean about I that. I mean, it was, it was... Because that wasn't the only shot that had some jaggedy movement to it. And yeah. I thought that was odd. Like, But there was a shot where when you first see... Uh, Hellman Hall, I think it is, where the villain lives. The camera, it's, it's on a crane, I guess, or a drone. It's going up, it's going over. But it can't be a drone because it's not, it's not smooth enough. Because as it goes over this sign or goes up to look at it, cranes up, it's, again, it's jaggedy. And you think, even in post-production, you could stabilise that. I don't know why that's been allowed well, to happen. It's clearly a choice, but I think it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wrong choice. I mean, I don't know who would choose that. Like, and what the, I, I, It feels like a mistake more than a choice to me. Or feels like something where they well, go, well, that's just why we, how yeah. it happened. I mean, for it to be a mistake and for it to be a choice are not contradictory. <laughs> they chose to let the mistake in. <laughs> but, but like the mistake, but for me, the mistake could be they didn't even think about it, notice it. You I know? don't know. I mean, it's it it's a film that feels that more attention has been allotted to pleasurable but trivial aspects of the film like the bracelets that Emma Thompson wears, mm. and not enough attention has been given to things like tone, you know, and rhythm and structure. So here's the thing, right? We've basically spent about 15, 20 minutes talking about problems with the film, and we started off with the reasons you didn't like it. Mm. I did like it. I had a really good time throughout most of this film. And when Emma stone comes in in particular and you see her face and you see her hair and her stuff it's all about her style and and her the way she's been dressed and the way she's been made up and i think she completely looks the role as both estella and cruella forget the acting forget the accent that you might not like she she looks it i was really going with it part of it is that i, I don't remember 
the animated film very well. I mean, hardly at all. I don't remember the live-action one with Glenn Close hardly at all, and I've never read the book. So whatever has been changed or adapted or lost or introduced, is that, that is lost on me. I'm, just, I'm actually pretty much taking this with just the barest bones of, of mm. uh, familiarity with the story. So I'm like, I'm fine with this, right? Actually, I'm, I'm fine with whatever it's doing, with the, with the style that it's creating, and actually it's starting to work for me. I did kind of think, I wonder why, for a film that's being set in London in the 60s, it's got no real relationship to what even I would recognise as the fashion trends of the time. Mm. Um, but then I thought, actually, maybe that's okay. Maybe it's just maybe I'll just let it tell its story in its way, you know, kind of sure. let it go. I thought it was a film that I would like more watching on television in a distracted manner. You know how sometimes... So, so for example, I thought about this with The Man from Uncle, that it didn't quite convince me at the cinema. Is this the Guy Ritchie one? Yeah. And then every time I see it on television, I get caught up in it, Mm. you know? And, you know, I was thinking, so this film felt a little bit like that to me, that it might be better watching in a slightly distracted fashion on television. And partly it's because, you know, in your head you're absorbed by it and things are not cohering and you're noticing all these mistakes. You're totally focused on it and it's not giving you what your focus requires. It's, yeah, uh, it's not good enough, really, uh, for me. Um, what I did think was remarkable, though, was that it's a film that has both the protagonist and the antagonist women, that there's no love story at all. Uh, which is interesting. It would pass the Betshell test very easily, right? Yeah, probably. And it, it provides a lot of, you know, really nice comic roles for men. I mean, it does make a big point out of this, yeah? Mm. It's just the way that it's chosen. It, and it's a very interesting approach to it, I think. And I love the look of it. Yeah, and I love the clothes. And, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a really handsomely uh, mounted film. Uh, it feels expensive. It feels expensive and, and imaginative, visually imaginative. And the soundtrack feels expensive as well. Yeah, and I didn't like it. Really? Yeah. I was thinking they must have spent a fortune on this because, you know, the songs are all classic. It's all like Rolling Stones and... Yeah, so they're you know, super... Trap- Judy Garland and uh, well, on uh, the, Doris um, Day and... On the um, uh, official soundtrack, there's Supertramp, Bee Gees, The Doors, Nina Simone, Ohio Players, Icantine Turner, Electric Light Orchestra, Queen, Blondie, The Clash, and there's more in the film. Well, there was definitely Judy Garland yeah. and Doris Day as well. Yeah, exactly. You know, so it's a very expensive soundtrack, but I didn't like the way that it was used. It all felt really obvious. Yeah. There's a lot of hits in there. It's fantastic to hear some of these songs. They're just great to hear, you know, one way or another, or... or mm. uh, a time of the season is in there, which is such a classic anthem of that era. But they all feel extremely obviously chosen. Well, I think the word is kind of Mickey Mouse thing when, you know, the soundtrack is just really underlining what the scene is about. Mm. And I thought the whole use of songs in this film was a kind of Mickey Mouse thing. Mm. You know, kind of making everything redundant. You know, the scene itself was already kind of conveying. Yeah, absolutely. It um, did convey a, yeah, um, a tempo and a style. You know, and and uh, it conveyed feeling. You know, and and some of it is a real shortcut to that. You know, you, you don't have to put one way or another over anything in particular for it to sound as, yeah. as cool as it does. And so, in a way, like you know, you're <laughs> sure they paid a lot of money for that song, and it pays off because it just sounds great. But yeah. they haven't actually done anything very interesting with it. It points to the failures in the film, though, because you hear that that one in particular, actually. You know, I'm going to get you, get you, get you. 
and you're bouncing and excited and like you know your body is responding to it in a way that the film itself doesn't do for you no. <laughs> so uh, now no. I think the last thing that people said oh it's a very queer film and so on and I went in with the expectation of that and I came out thinking well I don't know what people mean yeah I thought yeah. that so yes it's about fashion it's about artifice, it's really heightened. Uh, in many ways, it's very superficial. Uh, There's an LGBT character who you don't see him in a relationship with a man or anything like that, but you do get this thing about he gets shit thrown at him and abuse, and that's this line about. There's a kind of plausible deniability actually built into that line where you go, oh, it could just be about the way he's dressed, but it's hinting at I'm gay, and that's no, why I get abused. It's more than I think it's more than hinting at it. But I also thought, well, what a cliched character in a way, right? Like a camp boutique owner, mm. boutique owner, big deal. Like, you know, I didn't think any of it was like queer as in transgressive in any way. Yeah, exactly. You know, in um, fact, the most transgressive thing in any of that is the fact that she doesn't have a love interest. That's right. That's about the only thing. I was also thinking because Devil Wears Prada is so at the forefront in my mind when I'm watching this film and that Meryl Streep performance. I was trying to rack my brains for other opportunities that women have to play characters like Meryl Streep does and and uh, Emma Thompson does in this. And Glenn you know? Close did in the original because actually I think that kind of performance, I think even Meryl Streep doing an Anna Wintour in The Devil Wears Prada, mm. I think you can find traces of Glenn Close's performance in... Yeah. Uh, in... in um, what was it called? 101 Dalmatians. 101 Dalmatians? Or, yeah, yeah. Is that what her version was called? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. But the thing is, clearly either I haven't seen enough films or I'm not bringing the right films to mind, but I was thinking, why is it always fashion, right? Like, why, why isn't there an opportunity for women to get these roles outside of that milieu? Why is it fashion where they have to be cutthroats and all this rest of it? Because fashion is one of the few places where women can be really powerful. Yeah. You know. But can you think of countering examples? Can you think of other films where, you, you know, or is it, all, is it always fashion? Um, I know I'm putting you on the spot there. But. This kind of stylized, dominant, powerful, slightly wicked or very wicked in some cases... Mm. You know, the only, uh, the only other places that I've seen that this kind of thing is in films set in the Roman Empire. <laughs> yeah. Messalina or... Mm. But there the sexuality is obviously much more heightened. Yeah. Mm. Or actually films about monarchs, the Elizabeth I. Mm. Yeah. You see that kind of... Yeah. It's almost like a, a kind of a, a type of, of performance. Yeah. Mm. Where they're both uh, quiet but stylized, yeah. Um, I, yeah, because it is interesting that there is. I noticed this real restraint in Emma Thompson's performance, yes. despite the fact that it is it's expressive and it's cartoonish in some senses. Yes. It's, it's very out there, but she's restrained with it. Right, exactly. Like it's all done through the the corners of her lips moving, mm. or the way she pauses on a line, all that kind of stuff. She's not. She's never. She's not. She's not histrionic. Yes, she's you know? brilliant. Um, uh, but yeah, maybe other Disney villains have that sometimes, but but they wouldn't have certain elements of it. I think the thing is that it's very rare to have women be as powerful 
in other areas of society. So, you know, basically it is queens and princes, mm. you know, or fashion because I mean, you know, there aren't women who run steel industries or whatever, you know. No, but the other so thing is there is, is a wonderful film by Michael Curtiz with Ruth Chatterton where she does play that kind of, yeah. you know, owner of uh, all these factories and she's the big boss and, mm. you know, she's quite ruthless. She's ruthless with her men, right? Like, as soon as they stop making her happy in bed, she ships them off to Montreal. <laughs> it's like, ah, ah, ah. That's the other thing I'm thinking, like, it, the other thing about it being fashion is that it's, it's where women can fight with other women for power. You know, whereas actually in like the steel mill, whatever it might be, it'll be one woman in a world of men. Yes. And here, all the men are underlings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I suppose what's queer about this film is that there's no mention of sex at all. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you you have a sense of people's sexuality or of people expressing themselves through clothes and mm. makeup and. Yeah, but there's actually very little about, to do with sex, with the body, with yeah. exchanging of fluids. <laughs> it, is, it is Disney. Well, I know, but you know. even in Disney, mm. you know, uh, so... Because so, even in Disney, the love stories are essentially sexless. Well, that's true. So the only difference here is that there's no love story to be sexless about. Uh, I was just referring to your thing about, you know, where women can be dominant, mm. right? You know, and I think this is a film that really is peopled by women or by men of dubious or unstated <laughs> or uh, fluid sexuality. Hmm. And even, you know, the only person who comes across as, let's say, you know, more, um, you know, masculine or whatever, uh, he is Mark Strong, mm. who's playing the butler. Who a butler by definition is someone who makes himself invisible. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I thought anyway. That's... Although, although notably, he makes himself visible by coming out and, and revealing himself to be the keeper of these secrets and going over to Cruella's side, and having this unstated and only kind of partially implied father figure thing, where he's like clearly not the father figure to you know, and and he never has been. But when he's revealed to have all this information and so on. He does turn into this kind of retroactive protector. Yes. You know? So the, the so the revelation is that Corella is the villain's daughter, and this thing about the the white and black hair hair. And when she shows up, she goes, "Do you recognise that hair?" And he goes, "Just a coincidence." And he knows immediately because he was supposed to kill the kid and mm. never did. So he knows it's her. And obviously, you don't know this at the time, but but when the revelations ultimately come out at the end of the film, you go back and you go, "Oh, he was protecting her right there and then." Yes, but. Okay, so that's like a very good analysis of the story. But my point <laughs> remains, you know, that the role of a butler is to be there, but to be invisible. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, so that there's a kind of a closing off or a making invisible, you know, uh, particularly any elements that have to do with like individuality, feeling, sexuality, right? Like, mm. you know, a, a butler... Yeah, in fiction, it's a particular kind of figure. Why does the butler do it? Because nobody suspects yeah. it's even there, right? Like, uh, so it's so true. it's interesting that the more the most uh, traditionally masculine man in the film is one whose role is that of a butler. 
Yeah, but maybe he's like a domestique. You know, he kind of he reveals himself at the end, and <laughs> <laughs> there's an element of that I think, because the other thing is that right from the start, you know, he's Mark Strong. Like Mark Strong isn't a nobody. You know him. He's a recognised actor, and he could be playing just this bit part as a bit of fun or whatever. But it's no huge surprise that he turns out to have this bigger no, role in the plot. It isn't. Though I did think at the beginning, oh, he's just financing more stage work. <laughs> he could still be doing that even with the slightly expanded role. You know. But there is that. There is, I think I think I felt deep down that Mark Strong was not going to just be who he's supposed to be for a while. Like Mark Strong had to have something else to do. Mm. I mean, I actually thought right at the start when you meet him in the party, you don't meet him, but you see him talking to the mum and party, I thought, oh, he's the dad mm. uh, before you know who he is. So, you know, right from the start, I was it was kind of niggling at me that what is Mark Strong doing in this? And it doesn't, mm. I'm going to say, it wasn't a huge surprise that he turned out to have a more important role than just the butler. Mm. All right, let's wrap this up because... Yeah, yeah. Well, I did rather like it. You know, I think there are flaws all over the place and I think there are parts where you can see it's corporate and decided upon it's very Disney. But I still really liked it. I like Emma Stone. I love Emma Thompson. I really like all the underlings that hang around them. I quite liked the the, the other uh, grifters that she hanged around with. I think it's funnier than you did. I think they really could have tried harder and trained some animals properly. You know, feels like a crutch. Even though it's not easy to make a CGI dog look realistic and all the rest, like in animate and stuff, it feels like a crutch still, like oh, they would just do it with a computer. <laughs> you know, train an animal to just stop on a mark. You can do it. Dogs are very easily You're, trainable. This, this point really got to you. <laughs> it annoyed me. It felt like I don't know uh-huh. why it's so hard to train a dog to mm. just stop on a mark. People have um, been doing it for years. Anyway, you didn't like it. I think it's a huge disappointment. I found it dull and long and actually considering what what you think the film could have been with all of these elements yeah it felt a disappointment mm. and, I, and I am disappointed by it <laughs> I sang to you in the car and I wouldn't have done that without this film so <laughs> that's to be recommended <laughs> that is to be recommended and maybe you could include a little excerpt of it kind of in the podcast no it's just for you that <laughs> your private performance <laughs> <laughs> All right, thank you very much for listening. We're eavesdropping at the movies and we are on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website with nearly 300 podcasts now is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye bye. <laughs>